We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this episode we'll be talking the mls quarterfinals el trafico hype jesse marsh lately something's changed and it ain't hard to define uh union disrespect vatican girl u.s men's national team striker winger deep dive and so much more but first joining me as always my friend my colleague my guiding light david mossy a soccer savant and a fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire mossy how you doing on this monday october 24th in the year 2022. Doing well. Good to catch you during one of your brief stops in LA. You've been traveling quite a bit lately. <laughs> I got in uh, yesterday, late uh, late yesterday from, uh, where did I come from? Auckland. As we mentioned last week on the, uh, the pod, I spent the week in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, home of uh, the World Cup, the Women's World Cup next summer, along with the, the co-host uh, Australia. But we were in Auckland for the Women's World Cup draw. And uh, it was fun. It was wonderful. It was exhausting in terms of the uh, the trip. But man, oh, man, it was cool. And uh, keep in mind that later on this week, we will uh, have a pod dropping with an interview with the great Carly Lloyd, who hosted the event and then was really, really good and fun. And, uh, you know, she's uh, I think she's got some interesting reactions to not just the draw, but also the hosting of it. I saw you palling around with your former ESPN colleague and Brazil World Cup winner, Gilberto Silva. A lot of Gilberto. I mean, and then I flew back with him. What a, what a wonderful guy. I worked with him years ago um, uh, during the World Cup when I was working for ESPN uh, down in Brazil. And just, just the nicest, gentlest human being you will ever see and an incredible, uh, incredible player. He's the only person that I've ever worked with during a tournament that actually had surgery <laughs> within the tournament. At one point, uh, Gilberto was gone and we were all looking around and like, where'd he go? And he had bombed off to like Sao Paulo or something to get knee surgery at the time. It was crazy. He was laughing about it uh, earlier, but it was, it was very cool. FIFA, obviously when they do something like this um, and when they do everything, it is a, a, of a very high quality and wonderful people, wonderful time, first class, everything. And, Ultimately, the draw was really, really uh, interesting. I think good for the uh, the U.S. We'll talk about it, uh, as I said, later on with uh, Carly later on in the week. But good trip, and I'm back, and we're getting closer and closer to another trip, another long trip to uh, Qatar. So Qatar is is coming. We are ready for Qatar. Whether Qatar is ready, that's another, that's another story. Did you watch anything interesting? Uh, season one of House of the Dragon is in the books. It's done. Yeah. And uh, general uh, reaction in totality? I didn't love it, but I enjoyed it. I think it was a pretty good first season. Um, I hope it improves from here, though. A lot of those uh, birth scenes, I'm told. A lot of uh, you know, uh, birthing things that are going on. That's uh, where the graphic part of it is now, because nobody wants to do any sex scenes anymore, so it's the birthing scenes. I think it. the tagline for the show is, the womb is the real battlefield or something <laughs> of that sort. Um, but yeah, we ended on something of a cliffhanger. There's a war coming, but oh, okay. we, we didn't actually get to the war. Okay. Uh, they want you so, back for the next season. Right. Well, as yeah. you know, I can't watch it until it's all done. So just because the season's over doesn't mean that I'm going to now binge that. So when it's all done, let me know. But so far, uh, so good. Uh, what did I watch? Um, I watched a lot of stuff on, on the plane, but I also at one point watched, um, a new documentary out on Netflix called Vatican Girl, the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi, which is this crazy story from uh, back in the, um, the 80s when this teenager who was living in the Vatican with her family disappeared. And to this day, it remains unsolved. There are plenty of um, theories as to what happened and obviously happening in the Vatican. And did it involve 
the Pope and the uh, the powers that be there and the mafia, and they go through all this. It's multiple uh, episodes, but it's really uh, it's really interesting as to what ultimately happened to this girl and who was responsible for the taking of, uh, of this girl. Anything else? That's it. All right, should we uh, light this candle? Let's do it. All right, well, we're going to start off uh, with the MLS quarterfinals recap, and it was wonderful. I was able to watch it from, uh, actually, at one point, right right from one of the FIFA lounges that they had in our hotel. We put it up on the, uh, on the television screen. We were able to see all sorts of stuff that was going on, and even from thousands and thousands of miles away, it was palpable, the excitement and the pressure, and I think it delivered in terms of these four uh, quarterfinal games. Where do you want to start? So let's circle back to the two Thursday games that both aired on FS1. Uh, first up, Philadelphia, 1-0 winners at home over Cincinnati. Uh, Leon Flack with the only goal. The Union off to the Unlikely conference hero. final. Unlikely yep. hero. First goal of the year. Yeah, the Union off to the conference final for the second straight season. Yeah, it wasn't a great game. And yet, from a Philadelphia perspective, uh, I think Jim Curtin will be pleased in the way, you know, everyone's going to use that, you know, they ground out the game, and they did. It was a it was a grind ultimately, and they beat a Cincinnati team. We've talked before about you know the incredible connections there with Pat Noonan and with Chris Albright, and ultimately this is an, an a obvious for obvious reasons a, a wonderful and successful season for uh, Cincinnati and a dramatic leap in both you know the evolution and how far they have gone, but now the expectations given how poor they have been for a number of years. So no shame going out to Philadelphia, one of the elite teams and one of the best teams certainly this year and and for multiple years, but they did not go out to a Philadelphia team that blew them off the field or certainly played, uh, played their best. Philadelphia uh, union folks don't care. They just care about winning and they got the goal and they got the win that they needed. Uh, the other conference semifinal that night was El Trafico, which yet again did not disappoint. What a game. LAFC, 3-2 winners. It was 1-1 at the half. Buanga and Grancier with the goals. Then Buanga late made it 2-1. Jovalich comes off the bench, makes it 2-2. And then Arango in stoppage time. LAFC prevail. They're off to the conference final. We were in the uh, in the FIFA lounge screaming and yelling at this game. And, and as we know, sometimes it, you know, these, these big games don't live up to billing. But the Trafico continues to to give us what we want in terms of incredible games, memorable games, obviously, uh, obviously goals. And, you know, again, happening at a time when Cascadia isn't even involved in the in the playoffs. And we always have that debate about what the biggest rivalries are. I think, again, this cements what El Trafico means, not just to these teams involved and to these and to this city involved, but to Major League Soccer. And that it that it provided yet another time capsule type of game. A credit to both of these uh, both of these clubs. Obviously, the Galaxy wasn't a great year, but I think Greg Vanny is going to look at it as a pro- a progression. Not certainly where the great Galaxy teams have been in the past, but you know, from LAFC's perspective, it was just great scenes, great scenes. Even like I said, from thousands of miles away. My big picture take is that. Uh, we're in the playoffs now, and Bale and Chiellini are non-factors. It's incredible. Um, and, and then a guy like Buanga, who arrived with much less fanfare, is the guy. Scored the goal that clinched the supporter shield and scores two goals in this game. Plus Arango, who it still boggles my mind that midseason we were talking about them possibly shipping him out. Um, he's been one of the best signings in recent MLS history. He's one of the best players in the league. I don't know why people have such a hard time accepting that, but he is, and he's the hero here. And so LAFC moving forward, we'll see Gareth Bale, I guess, has an injury. Well, does uh, he? I mean, we were watching <laughs> our broadcast from uh, from Auckland, and it, there was this question, and I was you know scrolling through Twitter and trying to find out, and there, there was some real uh, mystery, I guess, around why he is not being involved in this at all. By the way, not even on the bench. Uh, you know, he came on the game after, and he was kind of all smiles as he celebrated with his teammates. But man, oh man! Although the longer they stay alive, there is a chance for him to have a moment and to right? change this whole narrative around. You know, we, he scored game-winning goals in Champions League finals. Watch him pop up and score a great goal to win MLS Cup, and then all of a sudden we'd be praising him again. But we'll see what happens. I mean, this is a LAFC team under Steve Trulundolo that. Came out of the shoot flying, right? And then had that dip when they started making a lot of changes. And I, I think they're they're back to an understanding of who they are, but that it's coming without Kalini and Bale. That is a 
that is an interesting subplot going on. And I don't think either of them are are problems or or cancers. But I I think again it shows that Steve Turundolo has done a really good job managing, you know, at, at times a difficult and challenging type of uh, type of season. Now, the other coaches around the, on the league aren't crying for Steve Turundolo because he's got a, a wealth of uh, of depth and assets to choose from here. But you still got to deal with all of these you know big players and these expectations, whether from the outside or the uh, uh, or the inside. So you know the uh, the supporters shield winners get not only a win but a win over their major rival and continue on. So that was Thursday night. The top seeds in each conference advanced. Then we move ahead to Sunday, the first game. The defending champs, NYCFC, go to Saputo, race out to a 3-0 lead. Maxi Morales and Ebbett in the first half. Tales Magno from the penalty spot early in the second half. Mihailovic pulls one back late, but it doesn't matter. NYCFC moving on to the conference finals. Yeah, I mean, NYCFC, I think this was comprehensive. Uh, and it's not that that Montreal didn't have their chances, but you know, everyone talks about taking chances and NYC certainly did. Um, Jordi Mihailovic gets a, you know, consolation goal and maybe just a reminder about how good he has been and how, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about potential players um, when it comes to surprises for the, uh, the 26, which by the way is dropping November 9th, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the roster for the U S women's national team going to uh, Qatar. Wilfred Nancy and this Montreal team picked a bad day to have a bad game in terms of finishing their chances. And NYCFC, who we know, talk about going through a transition, losing your coach, losing your, uh, uh, you know, Castellanos in your, your major goal scorer, have, I think, come out of that and are kind of feeling it right now. Now they're going to have to now go down to Philadelphia and play against Philadelphia with a Philadelphia team that isn't decimated from COVID as we've seen in the, in the past. So it gets that much, uh, that much harder, but this was a, this was, like I said, a comprehensive win and one that I think I got a lot of people that either haven't been right now or just are, are struggling to accept that the defending MLS cup champions um, are getting hot at the perfect time. I will say you talk about sliding doors moments in a match that Kai Kamara header off the post, how that didn't go in. And that could have been a totally different game. Sean Johnson also made a couple of big saves, although I thought the Mihailovic goal was a bit of a howler on Sean Johnson's part late. I I tell you this NYCFC stadium situation is producing some funky stats. I've had people tweeting them at me. Their last seven playoff games have been in seven different stadiums and they beat inter Miami uh, in the first round. There are five wins over Inter Miami have come in five different stadiums. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, between Yankee and Red Bull and City Field, or they played in the bubble in Orlando for MLS's back. They've obviously played in Fort Lauderdale. So uh, I don't know, but it's, I mean, it's, it's thought I'd get that. It's in not the player's fault, but credit to the players for being able to adjust and being basically a barnstorming type of brand when it comes to NYCFC. And we know, and we're not going to get into a big discussion about Yankee Stadium and, and the problems that they have. So, I mean, ultimately, if there's blame, it's not really blame. It's just the reality of NYCFC has had plenty of time and they have failed to actually get that stadium. And there's always, yeah, but it's coming. And yeah, but it's coming. All right, fine. When it's, when it's here, great. But until that time, you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be criticized. And I think fairly and rightly, uh, rightly so. And you are going to be put at a disadvantage when it comes to where you are playing for your brand. But these players... Uh, and this this particular team have looked at that advers- uh, adversity and have found a way to to blaze through it and in certain ways to use it to their advantage uh, their advantage going on. But like I said, it gets a little bit more dicey now with uh, you know going to uh, going to Philadelphia, which by the way will be the game that we will be doing. Uh, the second game on Sunday, Austin two uh, one winners over Dallas. Gta and Driusi in the first half. Then Velasco pulled one back in the second half, but Austin hold on. They're off to the conference final. And listen, several expansion teams made the playoffs in their first season. Austin did not. But if you frame it as how long did it take to become a genuine MLS Cup contender, year two is really impressive what Austin is doing. It is. And that they are doing it in that way on the field. And again, you know, we talked about these, these games here. I thought the environment in Philadelphia is always cool. They, they, you know, they bring it when it comes to that. So that was fun to see. We talked about El Trafico and, and, what, uh, and what that was. 
you know, the environment in Montreal was was great, even though the team didn't necessarily play great. But the environment in Austin uh, and the green and what they have created there and cultivated there and now with a team that it's not just about liking the team. It's about liking the team that is one of, I guess I, I, guess I will say relative to this year, one of the elite teams, but you kind of have to do it for a number, of, a number of years. But so far, so good. They are worth the price of admission when it comes to someone like Drew and they are giving their fans continually an incredible, an incredible incredibly entertaining version of Austin and that they are now, you know, in the conference finals. I think it says a lot about, you know, what Josh Wolf, what, what Josh Wolf has done, what Claudio Reyna has done and what that whole organization has done to, again, make such a drastic leap forward. But, but I'll leave you with this. MLS allows you to be able to do that through its structure um, and through its, I guess, rules and regulations that they have. And so seeing teams make dramatic leaps, we talked about what Cincinnati did. Now we're talking about Austin, which isn't as dramatic as Cincinnati, but still, if you if you understand the league and you are and smart and you surround yourself with smart people who also understand the league, you can make up a lot in a very short period of time. Uh, Brad Stuber made an incredible yep. save on Aubriana and Header late. So they've got Driussi on one end, Stuber on the other. They've got two real match winners there. Driussi with three goals in the two playoff games. They won both regular season meetings with LAFC, so they're going to go there with a lot of confidence. That's going to be a fun game. Yeah, I'm still picking uh, LAFC uh, over, uh, over Austin. And then as you mentioned, uh, Philadelphia NYCFC is a rematch of last year's conference final. NYCFC went in there and won two one. Talos Magna with a late goal, but Philadelphia is still salty about the fact they had to play that game with half their squad out because they tested positive for COVID. As Jim Curtin said, half my team had the sniffles, so they couldn't play in our <laughs> biggest game <laughs> of the year. All right, well, be careful, careful what you wish for. <laughs> what happens if uh, all guns blazing? It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't change. Um, all right, well, this is going to be this is going to be fun. As I said, uh, we will be doing the Philadelphia NYCFC game eight p.m. Uh, Eastern on FS1 and uh, from a Western perspective, LAFC hosting Austin. That is 3 p.m. Eastern time on ABC on both of those games on Sunday. So a jam-packed Sunday of MLS semifinal action. All right, well, we have a fun U.S. World Cup segment coming up, segment number two. So we're going to do MLS and European review all in one okay. shot here. Let's so go. let's transition to England, uh, where the big game this weekend, Chelsea-Manchester United finished 1-1, both goals in the second half. Jorginho from the penalty spot after McTominay tackled uh, Broya to the ground. Uh, and then Casemiro in stoppage time, a looping header off the fingertips of Kepa, off the post, and then just <laughs> across the line. His first goal for United. What a time to get it. So it finished 1-1. I want to talk about Pulisic in a minute, but let's do Ronaldo first mm -hmm. uh, because the world needs your take on this whole situation. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, United's previous game against Tottenham was a rousing 2-0 win at Old Trafford, their best performance of the season. Ronaldo didn't start, refused to come on as a sub, and then stormed out, out of the stadium before the game was over. And the punishment was that he was dropped from the squad for this game. You asked me a few weeks ago on this pod if what was happening with United this season was going to damage Ronaldo's legacy. And I said, no, I'd like to amend my answer. <laughs> so, so at one point I was in a car uh, and we were driving over to the venue down in Auckland for the Women's World Cup draw. And I was in a car with um, Jeremy, a wonderful Cameroonian player and, uh, you know, just wonderful, wonderful, funny dude. Because uh, he was one of the ball pickers, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Gilberto Silva, uh, Brazilian legend and World Cup winner, and Ian Wright, we were all in the car. And I was scrolling through Twitter, and I was telling him about you know the news that was coming out and what Cristiano Ronaldo had done, and then the possibility that he, he was showing up to training and going to you know be forced to train with the under-21s and just all of this incredible uh, drama. And they were laughing their asses off, as all of us uh, were from, from, from afar. But... To your point, obviously it's not a good look for him and that it's happening in the moment when his nemesis or greatest adversary, if you will, Messi is kind of gracefully going off into the sunset. It makes it look that much worse that he is behaving in this manner. Having said all of that, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo, we know, wears his heart on his sleeve and he is, I, can, I think I can use the word at times, immature in the way that he reacts to things and very passionate, obviously a very emotional type of uh, type of person. 
this is this is bad. And I think if you're coming down on the side of Cristiano Ronaldo right now, I think you're really forcing it. And it's not to say that he should be banished and banned. I mean, players behaving badly, that's nothing new. That happens constantly. Whether you're in front, this is obviously a, a guy who's oftentimes in front of it and in front of the camera, or a lot of times behind the camera when, it, when this is happening in, in much more private type of setting, but nothing that Cristiano Ronaldo does is, uh, is private. But you know, justifying his actions and his behavior simply because of the fact that you like him as one of the great players ever to play the game I think you're bending over backwards. And there are hills to die on when it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo. His behavior right now and over the last week and weeks, I don't think that's one of the hills. Uh, Pulisic came on in the 70-something minute. And if you really want to reach for something positive, he did earn the corner from which the penalty (laughs) occurred. But bottom line, uh, nothing's changed under Grand Potter. We're in the same place we were under Tuchel. And so everybody's looking ahead to January. There are rumors about Newcastle. I would be all for that. We'll get to Newcastle in a minute, but I think that would be a great destination for him. It's a a work in progress. Uh, I think he can obviously get a new lease on life there. Uh, It would be interesting, though, because the the rumors that I saw coming out were very, the, the number ultimately was very low relative to what Chelsea bought him for, right? And it was in the 80s that he bought him for. And if now they're taking a 50% cut to sell him on for 40, he's not a cancer. And you can kind of afford to have him and, and get as much back as you possibly can with the understanding that his value has, de- has decreased. So, but if that were to happen, I think that would be great. It would be great for, uh, for Christian Pulisic. And listen, we're, we're talking about this from a footballing perspective. I know some people, oh, I don't want him to go to Newcastle because of who owns that club and that whole situation. But you know what? When he signed for Chelsea, they were owned by a Russian oligarch who finances Vladimir Putin's war. So that was okay, but Newcastle isn't. So if we're just keeping it to football, I think that would be a great situation for him. Hey, the, the hypocrisy that exists when talking about soccer and, and that is going to exist here in the next few months when it comes to the World Cup. Um, it's astounding. Well, it should, it's not that astounding. Actually, it's not as surprising as, uh, as you think, but yeah. As I've said, I, I watch an inordinate amount of Newcastle now because they have this Brazilian midfielder. I love Bruno Guimarães, and there's such a good feeling around that club. The fans love what's going on. Every new signing is welcome with open arms, and Pulisic would be as well. And the latest step forward for them this weekend, uh, 2-1 winners away to Tottenham. Miguel Almiron, our old Maybe. friend, is having a terrific season, scored his sixth Premier League goal of the season. Newcastle are up to fourth. And the interesting thing is, this is not yet a story of a club throwing crazy money around and buying all these world-class players and moving up the food chain that way. They've actually been fairly prudent. If you look at that squad on paper, it's not that glamorous yet, but they've they've added some good players and they're expertly coached by Eddie Howe. And so they're already reaching this level before really even getting going from a flexing their financial muscles perspective. So it's a lot of good stuff going on there. It's kind of the way that you you do it. And I think more importantly, the way that they have articulated it and, and pub, from a public perspective has has gotten buy-in from the fans, that they recognize that this is a long process. This isn't just because there's new ownership, we're going to go buy everybody and their mother. They recognize that it's going to be a, a slow but steady type of growth. And they're seeing the results ultimately uh, on the field as they get better and better and better and back to where Newcastle fans obviously want them to be. Uh, next up, Jesse Marsh in Leeds. Uh, oh they lost 3-2 at home to Fulham. So the positive from the American perspective is Tim Ream and Jedi Robinson. Yep. But uh, from a Leeds perspective, Tyler Adams didn't play. Aronson did. Uh, this is now four straight defeats, just two points from the last eight games. They are down in the relegation zone. Uh, Jesse Marsh seems to be in real trouble. Uh, we're taping this uh, Monday morning. As of now, he's still the coach. Um, but they've got Liverpool next, and it, if he survives this week, I, I'm pretty sure that will be a make-or-break game for him. Right. I mean, first off, some context because we're you know we're we're kind of freaking out over when I say we a lot of in the U.S. soccer <laughs> uh, family out there that follows Leeds simply because of the American influence that they have. There's no shame in losing to Fulham. Fulham's actually a, a solid, good team, uh, and I think a lot most people would look at it as a better team than Leeds. Uh, Jesse Marsh, his job is to keep this team up this year. So a team like Fulham, you at least want to try to go out, go get a point. Uh, having said that, first off, take it from a U.S. perspective, from the Fulham perspective, right? 
uh, both of those players playing, playing well. There's a connection, that press that comes from Leeds. We all understand that. And so if there was ever a situation to point to relative to someone like Tim Ream being there because he can play out of the back, this is certainly one of them, under pressure and the ability to do what he uh, what he needs to do. But that was never the question when it comes to Ream. The question when it comes to Ream was much more so, and we wouldn't get answers in a game like this, what happens when he has to push up? What happens when he has to deal with balls over the top? What happens when he gets into you know, a race with, with others? And from a physical perspective, is he able to literally keep up when there are when there is space behind, as Greg Berhalter wants to, to play in a much higher a higher line. Okay, so that's the the Fulham part of it, and that's good. And as I said last week, I, I would if it's if it's Tim Ream, he comes with uh, goods and bads like every player. But you know that he continues to play and play well and be successful with Fulham right now. That's great for him. I don't know if it's going to be if he's going to be able to parlay that into a uh, a seat on the plane. But if he is, that's good too. Um, when it comes to Leeds right now. And Jesse Marsh, yeah, he's under pressure. And rightfully so. Not because he is an American coach, but because he is a coach in a situation where they are trying to get somebody in there that is going to steady the ship and make sure that they keep them in the league for what it means from a perception perspective and what it means practically from a, uh, a money perspective. Uh, I don't know if and when they were to, to pull the plug, but the shouts when it comes to fans out there right now have gotten loud and you know it could this could be the last week that we see uh, Jesse Marsh I will say the metrics point to a team that's playing better than mm -hmm. its record uh, they've been a, a bit unlucky in certain games I think this would be a quick hook I'm not just saying that because yep. he's an American um, I would maybe give them until the World Cup break and see if they can pick things up that's, the next that's few fair. Games. Yeah. and you know um, look as even though Liverpool is not the Liverpool of old it's still Liverpool right so uh, last one in England City, 3-1 over Brighton. Holland with two more goals. He's up to 17 Premier League goals this season. And and the gap is down to two points at the top of the table because Arsenal had their first little uh-oh moment, 1-1 right. uh, draw away to Southampton. So, yeah, with all due respect to Arsenal, I think uh, it'll be not not too much longer until City jumps into first place and probably pulls You away. don't think that uh, Arsenal is able to hang on here? I know? still think their season this is, is about this top This is tortoise four. and hare, that type yeah. of thing, right? Uh, yeah. Um, in Spain this weekend, Real Madrid, 3-1 winners at home over Sevilla. Benzema was awarded the Ballon d'Or before the game, but sat out with an injury. So they started Vinicius, Rodrigo, and Valverde as a front three. All three played well. Uh, Valverde with another incredible strike. He's right. turning into one of the best players in the world before right. our very eyes. I mean, it's, it's awesome. And again, I think, I think we talked about this last week. As we see these moments, we, we roll it forward and, and we extrapolate it out to how this is going to translate into the World Cup coming, you know, and form and all, all that kind of stuff. And someone like, like Valverde or, or, or others. But we also see players that are unfortunately getting injured. And we're so close to the World Cup right now. And it's devastating and heartbreaking to see. I mean, players are so on edge about it that you see these guys crying when they pick yeah. up an injury. And then you find out afterwards, oh, it was a little knock. He'll be right. back in training in a couple of days. But it's just the mere thought exactly. that, that something might have happened to knock him out of the World Cup. So the question is, are they, are they going at less than 100%? And, and it's easy to say you can turn it on and off. But it's, I think it's hard to turn it on and off. But it is in the back of their mind. And maybe it only flashes to the front of their mind if and when they uh, they get hurt, oh my God, I could be out of the World Cup. I could not be able to live that dream. But you see it, you see it playing. And as we get closer and closer, it'll be interesting to see when they say, "I'm going to live to fight another day." Here, when it comes to, especially for defenders, in terms of the tackles that they go into, or just the situations that any players go into. Uh, Barcelona. 4-0 winners at home over Athletic Bilbao. They, they hammer their former manager, Ernesto Valverde. We've talked about how Usman Dembele can be Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, they got, which is good there, Jekyll or Hyde? Uh, well, Whatever the good one is, that's what they got this weekend. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Jekyll is the good one? Je Jekyll is good, okay. All right. According Sean to Sean said, Sullivan. All right, well, who um, knows if this is right. So uh, Usman Dembele with a goal and three assists, got a standing ovation when he came off. Sergio Roberto, Lewandowski, and Ferran Torres with the other goals. So... Uh, Barcelona have picked things up uh, since that uh, Clasico defeat. They're three points back of uh, Real Madrid. Uh, a player that used to play for Barcelona also had himself a great game, Lionel Messi. As we skip over to France, PSG, 3-0 winners away to Ajaccio. Uh, Neymar uh, suspended. 
Uh, Messi and Mbappe put on an absolute show. Messi scored assisted by Mbappe. Mbappe scored twice, both assisted by Messi. So their connection was percolating. Yeah, until, uh, until Mbappe gets angry and wants to leave, right? Okay, so it's going well. <laughs> I will say, though, when Neymar is out, we kind of get to see what Mbappe hoped the team was this season. He wanted Neymar to leave. He felt like they'd be better balanced, I think, if it was just him and Messi up there. But So you think well, Mbappe plays better when Neymar is not on the field? I think there might be something to oh, it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then we'll end with a couple of nice American performances. First one in Italy, uh, Juventus, 4-0 win over Empoli. Wesson McKinney started and scored off a set piece, showing his tremendous prowess in that facet of the game. Uh, we've talked about the set piece, I guess, question relative to the uh, the national team. And we'll talk a little bit more uh, later on when, we are, when we're looking at some uh, at the strikers and, and, and wingers here. But it's undeniable. Put the ball in good areas, and Weston McKinney has a knack of getting his, uh, you know, his head and his body two different things here. So that's a good thing because while Weston McKinney has continued to play, you know, there's a lot of question as to whether he is playing well. Well, not a lot of question. I think a lot of people think that he's not at the level that he needs to be in, but he's at least playing. He is not injured like uh, like others out there, or not being put on the bench like others out there. So this is not only playing, but playing well, and obviously getting goals. Goals are a good thing. Masi, in my expert opinion. I'm actually going to sneak in one more Serie A okay. result. Uh, Napoli, 1-0 winners away to Roma. Ossiman with the only goal. They continue to roll. They're atop the table. And then we'll end in Germany, uh, where Gio Reyna started and scored in Dortmund's 5-0 demolition of Stuttgart. Uh, Gio's first Bundesliga goal in more than a year. We know all the injury problems he's had, so that was a nice sight. It's yeah. great. You know that movie, uh, Unbreakable? Uh, you ever seen that movie? Anyway, uh, I, I just I feel like I'm constantly saying, okay, just be careful. Don't do anything for Gio Reyna. We all know what the talent he is. And they, they brought him along slowly, which is a, a good thing. And now that we actually see him not just coming on for a few minutes, uh, not just, you know, just running around, but starting, playing well, and obviously scoring. Because there's a lot of people that if Gio Reyna is healthy, absolutely have him in the starting lineup when it comes to November in the World Cup. And then last, last thing in this segment, um, a while back on this podcast, you gave us your top five biggest derbies in the world. You put Boca and River at number one. Yes, congratulations, Boca. We had an absolutely surreal weekend in Argentina. It was the last round of the uh, domestic league. Uh, Boca going for the title against Racing. Boca were facing Independiente, while Racing were facing River Plate. So Boca fans were put in a position where they had to root for River Plate. And River Plate fans were put in a position where if they did well, it would be help handing the title to Boca. And that's exactly what happened. Boca's game finished 2-2, which opened the door. Had Rossing won their game, uh, they would have been champions. But instead, River beat them 2-1. So late in the game, you had uh, River scoring and everybody at La Bombonera erupting in cheers. <laughs> I, I can't imagine if in the history of Argentinian football, there's ever been an instance where Boca fans celebrated a River goal that passionately. But wow. uh, it, it was crazy scenes. The two matches kicked off simultaneously, and there were lots of twists and turns, live standings at different points. It was, oh, if Rossing looks like they're going to win. At one point, uh, they were level on points, Boca and Rossing, which meant there would have been a playoff. It had ended that way. And by the way, Independiente, the team Boca were playing, is Rossing's big rival. So it was kind of this whole weird interconnected thing. But so tremendous end to the season, Argentina. Boca Juniors are the champions. Congratulations to Boca Juniors, even though you were handed it by your biggest <laughs> rival. <laughs> All right, anything else, Masi? That's it. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, like I mentioned, we're going to uh, dive into our first of a couple uh, or several U.S. positional previews ahead of that roster drop that I mentioned is coming on November 9th. Don't go anywhere. Okay, we are back, and we're going to take a look at, positionally, this U.S. men's national team. And again, we mentioned the roster is coming. It's coming November 9th, and we will actually have a post-roster drop reaction show. And uh, with you know all of the questions and comments and concerns out there when it comes to this. And there are, you know, there's a lot of debate and, I guess, controversy as to who ultimately are going to be the 26 men that are going to represent the United States when it comes uh, to the World Cup. All right, which, uh, which position will we start with here, Moss? Well, we're going to tackle strikers and wingers today, okay. yeah. which uh, looking at the 26-man squad, most people are figuring it'll be about eight or nine players between those two positions, some people even doing 10. But keep in mind, there are some hybrid players like Malik Tillman, Christian Roldan, Gio Reyna, Brendan Aronson, where you could employ them as midfielders or... Uh, wingers. So 
Uh, we think it's you know we think it's going to be the four three three with those three players in that midfield and those three players up top. And so we are including both of these strikers and wingers as one or multiple players that are going to play in that top three, shall we call? So let's do striker first. Okay. Um, so I think m- most of us feel like it's four guys fighting for three spots, which would be Ferreira, Sargent, and Pepe, who are in the last squad, and then Pifak right now on the outside looking in. You do have guys like Haji Wright and Brandon Vasquez also in the general mix, but did you buy that we're down to those four fighting for those three spots? Yes. Uh, well, five, uh, right. So you would include Haji Wright in that? I would include Haji Wright only that he has been there before, and you know, someone like Brandon Vasquez has not been there before, and who knows about this? I'm not talking about this camp coming up, this strange camp that's happening with MLS players here. But I think that Greg Berhalter has pretty much established that he's going to go with the ones that uh, that brung him, right? And being a part of the group that he talks about a lot, I think he gives that incredible credence and, and, uh, and importance relative uh, relative to others. So I would con- consider him in that group. I still don't think he is is going. To your point, I think he's only taking three, and he's been kind of pretty clear over the last couple of months that that's something that he wants to do. I'd take four, but he's going he's gonna to ultimately take three. And so the incumbent, uh, we've talked about Jesus Ferreira. He is not, uh, and we were recording this on, uh, on Monday, as we mentioned, uh, Dallas, out of the playoffs right now. So he is one of those players who now is going to have multiple weeks before that first game against Wales where he is not playing games, uh, although he will be uh, be training. I do think that he is the incumbent. I don't think anybody looks at him right now as playing out of his mind as opposed to someone like Ricardo Pepe, who we know is now uh, you know, on that loan to Groningen and is continues to just score goals and is feeling good about what's going on. And maybe that's where he needed to go in order to, uh, to score goals. But, you know, goals can shade things and goals can give you a false sense of security, even when it comes uh, to, uh, to goal scorers. I- I've said before that I don't think Pepe is yet in the position where he would be one of my three. I would take Jesus Ferreira. I would take Josh Sargent and I would take uh, Jordan, Jordan Pifak. With what Ricardo Pepe is doing right now, it would not surprise me if uh, Greg Berhalter took Jesus Ferreira, Ricardo Pepe, and Josh Sargent, and Pifak, who we know was left off this previous roster, doesn't make it from a Greg Berhalter perspective if he's only taking three. And and like I said, I don't think Haji Wright is going to be involved, even though he has been involved in the past. Uh, Did Jesus Ferreira's performance in these MLS playoffs concern you, particularly the, the Minnesota game? He was awful. And yeah. then nothing special against Austin. I mean, so if you score, if you're a striker and you score goals, you've had a good game. If you don't score goals, you haven't had a good game. And I know that's that's simplistic. And again, that in and of itself can give you a warped perception of what the reality of a player is. I actually saw Jesus Ferreira kind of doing what we expect in you know dropping deep and and not really playing. I mean, actually playing the false nine in the way that he just shows up different places. He didn't have. A standout game, and he didn't have a standout type of moment where you were ooing and aahing about him. And therefore, as U.S. men's national team fans, it doesn't give us a great sense of security and hope going forward if Jesus Ferreira is ultimately starting. And so you just hope that when the World Cup ultimately comes, that a different version of Jesus Ferreira is there. Not that he's playing completely differently, but ultimately he's being a lot more effective and doing the most important thing up there, which is scoring goals. I will say, to make a larger point here, a couple of years ago, what got everybody excited, including us at Fox, is if you put together a projected US 11 and included the logo of the club that each guy was on, the pedigree was really impressive. Every position was Chelsea, Bayern, Barcelona, Manchester City. The implication was that Americans had arrived and they were going to become super relevant, super right. impactful in the upper echelons of the European club game. And it's amazing how at that center forward position, we now have to grasp for a guy doing it in the championship, a guy doing it for a mid-table Eredivisie team. In Haji Wright's case, a guy doing it in Turkey. PFOC is the only one, and even then, it's an unfashionable club that's kind of punching above its weight, Union Berlin. There, there is nothing as far as like the top 20 or so biggest clubs in Europe uh, as far as an American striker doing anything. Well, I mean, that is you know the ultimate moment, right? When that happens, when we have a worldwide, world-class recognized striker playing for one of those teams that is playing week in and week out and doing the most difficult thing to do in our game, which is to score goals. That will be something. We've 
we've never had that. Even with you know the likes of Josie and and Winalda and and these types of players, they've never been at that great club recognized all over the world and been the guy, the Lewandowski type of thing. And so I guess that's the next bridge. That's the next bridge to uh, to cross. And until that time, we'll just take putting the ball in the back of the net, regardless of where it's coming from. But you know, Jesus Ferreira. If Jesus Ferreira was the exact same player doing exactly what he is doing right now and doing it in Europe, I think our confidence level would be higher. I do think that he suffers from being in Major League Soccer and being associated with that. And that he is not playing great right now is just, you know, complicated and compounded by the fact that he's playing in MLS for a lot of people in terms of their assessment. Uh, in terms of winger, um, so, you know, Figuring four or five guys there. Um, well, wait, who do you got in the striker? Who do you think he's taking? You think if, he's taking three? If it's only three, um, I agree with your three. For me, it would be Ferreira, Sargent, and Pifak. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and then uh, Winger, so four or five guys, let's say. Obviously, Pulisic, Timmy Way, if he's healthy. And then if we're counting Reyna and Aronson as Wingers, I think those would be your four, main four. And then... If you're taking the extra guys there, then you're talking about guys like Jordan Morris, Paul Ariola. So how do you see that position shaking out? Uh, so, yeah, I think Christian Pulisic is locked in on that left-hand side. You know, he still has to be healthy. And that's that's a question, but I think he's locked in. And, and it's not like Christian Pulisic started every single game during qualified qualifying, but I think for what he is and what Greg Berhalter wants, I think that that's going to happen unless he is uh, is injured. You know, mentioned, you know, Giorena and, and Brendan Aronson, who, yes, they could you know, they could play false nines or they could play one of those threes and stuff like that. For, for, for our purposes right now, we're talking about, you know, the winger. I think, and we're going to do, you know, midfields and defenders and, and goalkeepers later on. But when it comes to who benefited maybe the most out of that last window that we know was not very good, I think Musa was the number one because he was not there. And I think he showed how valuable he is. But I also think Tim Weah really showed that, he is, I, I th still think, the most consistent winger in terms of being a classic winger with the type of speed to get behind the defense, to scare other teams, and to consistently take players on one-on-one -on -one using that speed, as opposed to Christian Pulisic, who loves to drift inside, um, take on multiple players, yes, but he doesn't have that sheer outright winger speed that you have to worry about if you're playing in a back four, that left back that is going to go up against him. So... Um, so absolutely for me, uh, you know, I think that uh, Christian Pulisic is going to be there. Gio Reyna is going to be there. Brendan Aronson is going to be there. And Tim Weah are going to be there. You know, I think one of Areola and, uh, and Jordan Morris are going to be there. Uh, Paul Areola is kind of a winger. and That's what you've seen him. I do think that Greg Berhalter likes him. And I think Jordan Morris is going to be a real question because the Jordan Morris that I have, and I think that Greg Berhalter has, and a lot of people have, has still not really shown up. In, in recent times for either club or country. And if that Jordan Morris doesn't exist anymore, then he is of much less value and certainly not on the plane when it comes, uh, when it comes to Qatar. But if there is a glimmer of that Jordan Morris still in existence, I think it's enough to put him on the plane where coming off of the bench, he provides a very different type of look on that off wing, if you will, playing on that left-hand side, even though he's so right-footed and dropping his shoulder, getting around people. The problem is we haven't seen enough of that. And I'm not sure it still exists uh, given the injuries that he's come off of. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of fretting about Pulisic's minutes, Giorena's minutes. Timmy Way is a guy that we don't talk about as much, but he also had a pretty serious injury, was out a while. He's just come back. He did have two assists in the game, but he's not starting for Lil. So he's somebody that is going to arrive at the World Cup not having played that much this season, and you're going to hope that he can sort of flip that switch. Any concern about that? Wait, who? Timmy Weah. Uh, I, I, no, I think he's, I think he's going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I think, that, I think that people will rise to the occasion uh, of the World Cup. And again, I think we put so much, so much weight and kind of carry over so much of that baggage of what the player is doing from a club perspective. And it, it doesn't all... A lot of times it doesn't translate. I think, yeah, I think Tim Weah is going to be fine from a physical perspective. And I think, you know, I, I talked about putting Brendan Aronson possibly in that position and putting Tim Weah in a, in a different position. It would be interesting, and I'd really struggle, if all I could do was either play Tim Weah or Brendan Aronson on that right-hand side in, that, in the top three. 
who I would go with because I feel like I got to get Brendan Aronson on the field. But if the only place that I can get him is on that right-hand side, and maybe this last window changed the way that I think about Tim Weah, it's really hard for me to take Tim Weah out. And winger position, I, I, we talked about the problems at center forward. This is a strength. I mean, I know yeah, we're yeah, worried yeah. about some of these guys, their yeah. health and their, you know, the fact that they're not playing regularly for their clubs. Yeah. They but just all, They don't all play the same way, but yeah. they all provide a real you take value. take a step back just in terms of pedigree. That quartet of Pulisic, Reyna, Aronson, in a way, is fantastic. It's very nice. Yep. It's very nice going forward. All right. Anything else uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the... Uh, well, we've, we've concentrated on the striker and winger uh, for this podcast. And like I said, we'll do uh, that midfield uh, three, which kind of writes itself to a certain extent, and back four, and obviously goalkeeper uh, going forward. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, oh, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms. And don't forget our handle out there, SOTU with Alexi, on all those social media platforms. Or, as a lot of people do now, uh, you use our voicemail, uh, our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297. I think we got a couple of voicemail calls, right, Mossy? Yep, let's go to the first one right now. Hi, David. Alexi, this is Ryan from West Virginia. Uh Love the podcast. Love what you do. Thank you for what you do. Uh, so I was just wondering, I know that the World Cup is coming up, and that's on the foremost of everyone's mind. But as far as growing the sport, how important is the 2024 Olympics? And where do you think or how do you think we should do in those Olympics? Thank you. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Ryan. Uh, from West uh, Virginia. Uh, so the Olympics, the Olympics are an interesting thing. You mentioned growing the sport. I, I don't know how much growing of the sport happens from a soccer perspective when we do well at the Olympics. Uh, women's team is, is, is a little bit different, and obviously they've been very, very successful and have used that platform. Uh, you know, the problem, it's not the problem, it's just the reality of an Olympics is you're competing with all of these other sports. We traditionally, from a men's perspective, have not done, done particularly well. Good, good news is about 2024, we are finally back at the Olympics after missing multiple cycles. When, when I think about the Olympics now, though, I look at it from a practical perspective. We talked so much, Mossy, and you know, we just did a whole segment on this incredible group of talent that we have that is now with the national team. Well, this talent is not only inexperienced, but it's very, very young. That means that they have a, well now, a wonderful rampway up to 2026. Keep in mind that as a host of 2026, the United States, we are not going to go through a qualifying process. And so any type of opportunities that we have that we can create or accept when it comes to going to different tournaments uh, or stuff that is in our window here, we have to use to prepare for 2026. The, the challenge with that is there's a whole group of younger players that are coming up right now that we also have to kind of blood. And so if it's Greg Berhalter going forward or somebody else going forward, they're going to really strategically have to look at the 2024 Olympics from a men's perspective in how many of these players are we going to say, look, we don't have qualifying. This is a big tournament. This is an opportunity for us to get that type of experience. Can we use it? Because there will be players that just from an age perspective, and keep in mind, it's under 23 at the time of the Olympics, plus an additional three players that you can add in the Olympics um, for uh that are able to participate. So you got to choose who are those three. There will be players, like I said, that just from an age perspective will be able to, uh, to go. And who do you choose going forward to get as much experience as you can relative to 2026? And I don't know what the uh, philosophy is going to be. It might be, let's take a really young team and blood a whole new generation in that 24 that we then add to an already younger generation. Or it might be, let's get as many of what we think are going to be part of 2026 that we saw in 2022 together in this uh, in this tournament because we don't have qualifying coming, uh, coming forward. Thoughts on the Olympics, Mossy? Yeah, it's really interesting uh, because in the summer of 2024, we also have a Euros and a Copa America. Now, there's been some talk about the U.S. taking part in the Copa America a sort of a centenario style tournament. So that would change the equation because if that's the case, and I think you would prioritize that over the Olympics, but let's say that doesn't happen. Then 
the Olympics would be the tournament for the U.S. in the summer of 2024, while a lot of the European and South American powers would prioritize those regional tournaments and wouldn't send the strongest possible team to the Olympics. So from a strictly results standpoint, there there would be a real opening there. The U.S. would be able to put together a nice squad and I think go deep in that Olympics and maybe even win a medal. And, and keep in mind that, you know, it's going to be groups of three for 2026, right? And again, we are going to be limited as to the amount of competition that we are going to be able to have. And we already saw it this cycle. A lot of people saying, hey, we didn't play in enough teams. And it wasn't anybody's fault. It was COVID and it was just the reality of you know, Nations Leagues happening and, and all these different tournaments that are competitive. So the, the opportunity to play against teams that you don't get in, in normal circumstances becomes that much more valuable. So whether it's going to Copa America and playing against Conable teams or going to an Olympics where you're going to play against teams from all over the world, what is the best possible preparation? I don't know. I mean, they're going to have to figure it out. And that's why a guy like, uh, like, well, if it's Greg Rehalter continuing on, but more importantly, a guy like Brian McBride, the general manager of the team, and then Ernie Stewart overseeing everything, strategically, they're going to have to really figure out what they want to do. By the way, it's not definitely groups of three. It's and be and credit three. where credit's due. Uh, Grant Wall was the first guy I saw report that, that FIFA rethinking that. I've been yelling about it. It's been my main objection to the 48 Team World Cup that I think 16 groups of three is a ridiculous format. And according to Grant's reporting, some at FIFA are kind of looking at that. Yeah, maybe there's a better way we can do it for uh, 12 groups of four or whatever. It is. So they're, they're playing around with different formats. But you're very much in the FIFA family around, so you might know something I <laughs> no, don't. No, no, I don't. I'm, I'm just assuming that's what it's going to be uh, because then if you go to the other way, then you're starting to have third-place teams go through, right? Yeah, and I, I think, think so. so. You've gotten past that going forward. But yeah, I mean, no matter what, 2026 is going to be very, very different. And although, although one could argue two teams advancing out of a group of three is just as farcical as third-place teams that, yeah. in a group of four. <laughs> right, exactly. So, all right. Well, anyway, um, good call there from uh, Ryan there in, uh, in West Virginia. I think it's going to be important. And no matter what happens, we should be very excited and happy because we are finally, from a men's perspective, back at the Olympics. And we can use that because we have wasted that platform for too long. So uh, that's, the, uh, that's the good news. Who ultimately represents us and what the philosophy is going forward, that remains to be seen. All right. Uh, another one, right? Yep. Another voicemail. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. Um, this is John. I'm calling in from uh, Pittsburgh. Um, I have a question that's aimed towards uh, Lexi. Uh, sorry, Mossy. Um, with the World Cup coming up, I'm curious is to, uh, Alexi, if you have any memorable jersey swapping stories uh, on the field, maybe not even during the World Cup, but in any international game. Uh, and to piggyback off of that, I'm also curious, uh, could you provide any insight to the fans uh, about any unwritten rules or um, best practices that the players follow uh, whenever they do go to swap a jersey? Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Love the pod. Bye-bye. All right. Well, uh, thank you, John, from uh, Pittsburgh for the question and the Jersey swap story. So, so, so a couple of things. Um, I, and I think I've mentioned this before on the pod, throughout my career, I, while, I, while I traded jerseys after the game, I never kept any of them. I gave them all to our chiropractor, actually, with the national team. And uh, George Billauer is his name. And so he has an incredible collection of <laughs> jerseys from uh, multiple, multiple years. And some, you know, I guess would be pretty famous uh, players that I, that I switched with. Um, I just, it, it never, it, I didn't care, to be quite honest with you. I was, I was there. I have that memory. And looking back on it, would I have done it differently? No. I mean, George was great and wonderful and, and he appreciated it. And, and so I, I had to and it ended up became it ended up becoming where I would do it, and then immediately I would give it to him, and it was just this this conveyor belt. Um, and ultimately, I'm I'm glad that it went to someone who could appreciate it much more than uh, than I did. As far as uh, stories, so there's a phenomenon that that happens, and I think this is evergreen, of players already thinking even before the game <laughs> who they want to trade with. It never, ever occurred to me to plan out how this is going to go. I did, I vividly remember seeing that exchange happen. And usually it goes something like this. Before the game, you're you know, warming up or you're standing in the tunnel at times. And there's this sheepish type of move, depending on who you are. Usually there's a kind of a power imbalance. And inevitably, it's someone that's not necessarily on the same level 
saying, hey, can I have your jersey? And that person oftentimes is very gracious and says, let's wait till after and then we'll doing it. And it's a preemptive type of move, which I just, I find difficult to comprehend, let alone to relate to in any way, going into a competitive game and being that cordial and personal with somebody that you want, I, that I always wanted and to crush and looked at it as my mortal en enemy until after the game. So I would never in a million years preempt it and go and establish that I'm trading with somebody after the game. I, it was much more organic for me if it happened, whatever. And people would find me at different points. I mean, that power, power imbalance worth, worked both ways. And, and oftentimes I was this freaky big guy or whatever. And um, I remember, you know, uh, Jim Curtin, the now coach in, of, uh, uh, of the Philadelphia Union, when he first started his career, I remember playing an MLS game with him. And I remember immediately after the game, so he, was, he understood the protocol of it. Immediately after the game, he came running up to me and said, hey, uh, will you trade a jersey? And I don't know, his, his wife dug me or something like that. Not like that way, but, you know, she, <laughs> I don't know. I think that was his, his, uh, his excuse. So that, Jim Curtin does it in the, in the right way. So, yeah, those are some different things. Uh, I think I've told a story where Maradona, after we played Argentina, even though he wasn't playing, he was just in the stadium, came and asked for my jersey. So that's not necessarily a swap, but that's a, uh, a jersey story here. I don't remember any of the people that I ultimately swapped with. I love the ceremony of it. I love the ritual of it, but it was a little bit uh, lost on me. Go ahead, Mossy. Uh, Warren Barton told me a hilarious story once. Newcastle was playing Juventus, and Zinedine Zidane was playing for Juventus. And around the 90th minute, Warren started intentionally sort of drifting towards <laughs> where Zidane was in anticipation of that moment. Right. And he said he, he looked around and he noticed like four other Newcastle players doing the same things. So it was going to be this wild free-for-all as right. soon as the final. Right. <laughs> I, I will say that, you know, times have changed. And, uh, you know, we talk about how, how far we have come. There was a point from a U.S. men's national team perspective where it wasn't about whether we wanted to trade jerseys, it was whether we could trade jerseys in that we just didn't have enough to actually function as a team. So there was a practical reason for why you didn't uh, do that. And there was, you know, who's going to pay for it? And is it a fine? And how many jerseys that you have? Even when we got to the World Cup, it was very clearly stated how many jerseys in total you had. And so you had to navigate through that. Uh, staying with Warren Barton, um, I benefited from a jersey swap. 1995, uh, England played Brazil at Wembley in a tournament called the Umbro Cup. 3-1 uh, win for Brazil, by the way. And at the final whistle, Warren swapped jerseys with Edmundo the Animal, Ooh, one of my favorite players. I remember him. And yep. Warren generously gave me that jersey. So I have a match-worn Edmundo Brazil jersey from a match against England. You could could have perhaps done the same, but you gave all your jerseys to this damn chiropractor. I know, so right? Oh, yeah. George has got a great collection going on there. All right. Anyway, good question there from uh, John, John from Pittsburgh over there about uh, jerseys. It's, it's a cool thing. And while at times it kind of crops up in other sports, it really hasn't kind of taken hold. But... I think it's such a cool part of the ceremony and the ritual of a game. Uh, of a game, and so while I didn't care about the jerseys, I did care about the swap, and it was cool to actually see that play out. Or you know, let alone to have somebody run up to you and ask you for uh, for the jersey. All right, again, uh, use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there, or call as Ryan and John did onto our uh, State of the uh, Union podcast hotline 657-549-2297 that's 657-549-2297 we'll take another quick break when i come back i'll give you my one for the road okay welcome back it is the end of our show and at the end of each and every show i give you my one for the road this one's about perspective when it comes to American soccer. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the show uh, that uh, the Philadelphia Union, one of the great teams this year, coached by uh, the great Jim Curtin, uh, will be playing in the uh, semifinals. And, uh, you know, this is a team that I think that has resonated with MLS fans and with soccer fans and certainly with the, uh, the folks in Philly. Having said that, 
Um, <laughs> there was, uh, you know, this is a, a, a wonderful time for Philadelphia sports, Mossy. I know you, uh, you follow a lot of the different sports over there. And the Philadelphia fans of sports uh, and just people of, the Phil- of Philadelphia are really excited about what is going on. So I want to play you a, a little clip here where a news reporter is asking some, uh, some, some young ladies o- over there uh, in Philadelphia about these heady times where all of their teams are doing so well from a sports perspective. Let's hear that. Go Phillies! Um, Let's go Phils! Okay, listen, Phillies taking over. The, no, the Phillies are taking over. Also, the Eagles, the Flyers, the Sixers, uh, I don't know. Wait, the who? Go Phillies! Go Phillies! The Union! Like the blue collar workers, the soccer team, but the, but the blue collar workers as well. All right. Uh, I mean, we appreciate uh, the folks over there in uh, uh, Fox 29 over there in uh, in Philadelphia. And um, I only I only play that to talk about, you know, perspective. And as someone who's been around for a long time, Mossy, uh, working on and off the field, uh, along with a lot of other people that continue or have, uh, have come and gone uh, to push that boulder that is American soccer. At times, we will get to a point where we say, hey, we've made it, and hey, everything's good. And don't get me wrong, we are so far along and so much better off than we were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that type of progress is only due to this constant pushing of the boulder up a hill. And yes, it has gotten easier but it is not easy. And, you know, something like this, I know it's, you know, uh, anecdotal, right? And it's not representative of everybody. But this is the type of um, lack of, of knowledge and understanding, even within an MLS city, um, that is the challenge. And it's not, a, it's not a bad thing. It's just the reality of not being the major sport in our country and culture, and in our cities when it comes to a Major League Soccer team, not having the penetration and the, um, the relevance that you need. But it comes each and every day working. And while there are plenty of people that you could have asked on the street there in Philadelphia who would know exactly who the Philadelphia Union are, there are still plenty of people where it doesn't register. It is not on their palate of sports or even professional sports when it comes to, uh, you know, a place like, uh, like Philadelphia. Now this should not, um, be viewed as a, uh, all encompassing type of indictment of Philadelphia. I only use it again to show how we have to continue to work and we have to continue to be as open and accepting and welcoming um, as possible when it comes to our sport. And while we have come a long way, we still have a long way to go. And it gets back to, you know, what's happening in November and December with the World Cup and the opportunity and the platform uh, that we have to continue to create fans, to continue to invite people in. And whether they are hardcore Philadelphia Union fans or just getting to the game, that we can convert into Philadelphia Union fans, or whether they don't even necessarily watch the team, but they know and they acknowledge the team. And with that comes the credibility that you need. And they're wearing the gear. I have seen it change. And sometimes we can get caught up in the moment. And like I said before, sometimes we can kick ourselves for what we aren't. And you might see a segment like that and say, oh, I can't believe that we, you know, that we we haven't registered on this young woman's sports radar out there. But we have registered on a lot of radars out there and getting to her and others out there so that when you don't even need to be prompted by the uh, reporter, when you are rattling off your teams in your city, whether they're doing well or not, the union is just another one. And there's a whole generation that is growing up where soccer and Major League Soccer or USL Soccer or NWSL Soccer are part of their sports palette. And there are fewer and fewer of, you know, whether it's, you know, the young lady that we showed here on this, uh, this interview or others out there that either don't know 
or don't care to know when it comes uh, to soccer. But, you know, this is, uh, it's a labor, like we said, a, and a labor of love, but it continues to be a, uh, a labor. And sometimes we need, you know, a really graphic illustration of, you know, we still got to work, Mossy. And that's okay, because it's a joyous type of work that we are doing, and we are seeing the results. And this summer, or uh, this, uh, this November and December, part of what you will see are the results of all of that work over decades and decades and decades. Part of what you will see next summer in the Women's World Cup is all of that work that continues day in and day out, as I said, from men and women out there who work their ass off to spread the gospel of soccer in the United States, a country that, as we know, soccer isn't king. And that's okay, because maybe someday it, uh, it will be, but not without the, uh, the continued and daily effort of pushing that uh, boulder up the hill. Mossy, anything before we go? Astros in five. You got Astros in five. Okay, cool. And the final is what? Astros against whom? Phillies. Hence the... Oh, okay, right. There we go. Hence the Phillies. And the Phillies are a baseball team, right? Right. Got it. Got it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we'll have a, another episode of the State of the Union later on this week. As I mentioned, wonderful interview with uh, the great Carly Lloyd. Uh, and we'll talk about a whole other, a whole, a bunch of other stuff, including getting ready for this weekend's MLS semifinals of Major League Soccer when it comes to uh, MLS Cup. Uh, keep re uh, reviewing and writing and downloading and subscribing and doing all the different things that you do out there, including the, the Ask Alexi questions that we get out there. And then, of course, our State of the Union podcast hotline at 657-549-2297. All right, until later this week uh, and another episode, size the day. <laughs>